The scripture for today's sermon is taken from the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verse 26. Uh, As we continue our sermon series, we're looking at the grand story of the Bible. In week one, if you recall, we talked about why would God create a universe in the first place. Uh, In week two, last week we looked at the seven days of creation. Today we ask the question, what does it mean to be a human being? Who am I? What am I? What does it mean to be created in the image of God? Chicago newspaper reported a few years back the tragic story of a woman on the eighth floor of a Chicago hotel who had left her husband and her children to be with another man. Then that man subsequently left her, and she was all alone and abandoned in the hotel room. She took a thirty-eight revolver and left a suicide note behind which said, quote, Do not cry for me. I'm not even human anymore. In that same hotel, there was a gathering of uh, a New Age religious group. A New Age movement was meeting for their annual uh, meeting, and um, a number of the speeches and the songs had the crowd riled up. Then a celebrity came up and was speaking to the whole group and led them in a chant, proclaiming, I am God. I am God. I am God. And the article from the Chicago, uh, what is it, Tribune? The article concludes saying, the irony of being human is that people in the same time and the same place can have such contradictory views about themselves. So what are we? Are we, are we nothing? A soulless bag of chemicals? Are we divine? Verse 26, Genesis 1. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every, every living creature that moves on the ground. And skipping ahead to chapter 2, verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the bread of life, and the man became a living being. So this morning we're entering into a conversation which has been going on for a very long time. Theologians have long puzzled over what does the image of God consist of? It's a phrase that you and I are are very familiar with. It's almost ubiquitous. We're made in God's image. But there have been 
so many contradictory answers given as to what that actually means. In early church history, they answered that question almost exclusively in terms of what separates us from animals. And they said, uh, what sets us apart from the animal kingdom is that we have rationality, we're able to reason, we have self-consciousness, we have emotions, we have a moral conscience. All of those things differentiate us from the animals and make us divine image bearers. And oftentimes in early church history, they would make the distinction, they would really focus on the rational capacities of mankind because they wrongly were following Greek philosophy, which prized the, the mind and the rationality over physicality, as though that was uh, somehow superior. But again, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? I think the simplest answer to that question is going back to the original context, the people who this was originally written to. And actually, the image of God, or the and images were, were very common in the ancient world, as you might expect. Statues, figurines, pictures were all used in the ancient world to represent who? To represent kings. A king would have this capacious territory stretching over a great distance, and the majority of the people who lived in the villages of that kingdom would never have seen the king personally. So it was these images of the king which would demonstrate to the people that this is the king's land. He rules this place, and we are his people. He rules us. If you look at verse 28 in the passage in front of you, you'll see that of all the creatures God made, we are the only ones that get a job description. And that job description is found in verse 28. Here it is. It says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, which is, which is a, a great gift, and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the, uh, of the sky and so on and so forth. There you have that same concept as uh, the images show who rules. No, we are, uh, part of this description is we are to rule as God's living icons representing the creator to his world. We are to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, it says, and then there's that word subdue. When we hear the word subdue the earth, to too many people, that means that we are to exploit the earth by force. You know, it's subdue, muahaha. It sounds like Ming the Merciless from Flash Gordon. What does it mean for us as his image bearers to subdue? Well, you have to go back to the original context again. This is the Garden of Eden. God isn't saying exploit the garden with greed, with greed. He's saying, care for the garden and care for the earth. Cultivate and develop the world. Another connection in the passage, if you were here, remember in verse 2 where it said that the world as God created didn't pop out kind of ready-made, but that there was, the earth at that point was formless and it was empty, and even God himself had to take that which was formless and give it shape and take that which is empty and fill it. Well, that's exactly what we're supposed to be doing as his image bearers. We are to 
to add order, to fill emptiness with good things. What is one of the first things God does? He speaks. We are to be speakers, to develop language. Um, And it's going to take a large degree of effort on our part. But if, as I said in the very first sermon, if the creator God, if the triune God created all of this world as an act of his love, then surely we're supposed to see our ruling and subduing in that light. He has always intended us, here's the takeaway, he's always intended us to develop creation by loving creative ingenuity and by the spread of, sweat of our brow, not by exploitive greed. So the image of God representing the rule of a king was a concept very familiar to the ancient audience. But there was actually here something that would be shocking to the first readers of this passage. Here, Genesis 1 tells us something that no one would have dared say in the world at their time. And and it's simply this, that each of us bear his image. Back then, the only people who would be found in the image of the gods would be your ruling class, your kings your royal family, or your priestly caste, your priests. And it was the common people who would never be considered to be in the image of the gods, who were supposed to follow those who are in the image of gods. Um, It was a way to maintain power and to protect the status quo. But here is God saying on the very first pages of the story, no, no, you all are my divine, regal image bearers. You have been made by me, for me, through me, to represent me. And it doesn't matter if you are rich. It doesn't matter if you are poor. It doesn't matter what you've done with your life. There is a rock-solid, irrevocable, irreducible significance and value to every single one of you. And that, that's not just the whole sentimental kindergarten, you know, your special sticker that goes on <laughs> your paper. This is, this is objective. This is not subjective. This is true value about you and every human being that's on this planet, men and women equally. I hope you hear in that uh, how a doctrine like that has such tremendous implications for kind of everything in life. Certainly has tremendous implications for civil rights, for instance, Where do you think the idea that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that people are endowed with by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that regardless of race, regardless of national origin, regardless of class, you have rights that you cannot trample upon as an individual? Where do you think that idea came from? Was that straight out of Darwinian evolution? Of course not. That's MLK. And his powerful words, he says, we must never forget this as a nation— that all men have something within them that God has injected, and this gives to all men uniqueness, worth, and dignity. There are no gradations in the image of God. Every man from a treble white to a bass black is significant on God's keyboard, precisely because every man is made in the image of God. Amen? Go back to that phrase, there are no gradations in the image of God. You realize, don't you, 
that over the last two centuries, with all of our civil wars, with our two world wars, with our worldwide genocides, and with abortion, humans have murdered more humans over the last century than in any other point of recorded history prior. And the common denominator in all of these instances is we have, you always have to minimize the humanity of the group that you want to enslave or kill. You, they always say that, that there are gradations on the scale of humanness. Here in America, we justified the slavery of Africans on that basis because they were not fully human. We abducted them and put them in chains, all the while justifying the institution of slavery because they were somewhere on that gradation scale, but less sophisticated, less developed, less human than white people. In the 19th century, Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr. said that our treatment and our extermination of the Native Americans was justified because they aren't fully in the image of God. Nazi Germany, what do you think they thought? They maintained that the massacre of Jews and the disabled was perfectly necessary in order to maintain the gene pool of the master race, who is more human than everybody else. Stalin, Mao, the communists, same thing. Again, the common denominator in all of these atrocities is you target a subgroup and say, that they lack capacity, they lack, lack stages of development, they lack age or size, and that's how you end up in the 19th and 20th century enslaving, imprisoning, and killing so many people. Recently it was in the news, you may have read it, how Iceland is systematically aborting all the children in the country who, are, who have Down syndrome. And if you listen to the defenders of abortion, what we had the uh, Walk for Life this weekend, when you listen to defenders of abortion, they always, in their language, will try and speak in such a way that the human embryo or the human fetus is subhuman. It's not human. It's not a tiny infant human. Even though the fact that our word embryo is just the Greek word embryon, Embryon, when you take it into the Latin, is, I'm going to always mess up my Latin pronunciations, is it fetus? And fetus in Latin simply means infant. I know it's trite and cliche, but one of the most important ideas that our society has to hold on to, or at least get back, uh, get back to, is this idea that every human life is precious. I love the quote. I hope you like the quote on the front of the bulletin from Thomas Uto. I've climbed Machu Picchu and Picchu in Peru. I visited the Parthenon in Rome. I've watched it snow in deep woods in rural Michigan. But nothing is as beautiful as a human being. When we look at each other, we don't see that. I mean, truly, when you look at the person sitting next to you, do you say, nothing is as beautiful as you? (laughs) You are that precious? You got to let it sink in. Unborn life is precious. Children with special needs are precious. Aging parents 
even when they don't remember you because they're suffering from dementia. They are precious. People who are nonverbal, people who are on, in wheelchairs, those who are completely dependent upon you or doctors or others are precious, all because of this rock-solid objective truth that you are the royal image bearer of the king. Now, I'm going to come back to this idea at the end of the sermon with some application points, uh, some take-homes on what, what, so what, what that really means. But I want to, I told you for the last three weeks I would talk about evolution, and now I'm really kind of wishing I said, <laughs> I didn't make that promise, but I have to make good on that promise. Uh, there's a volatile debate centering on the first chapters of Genesis and its relationship to evolution. From where I sit as a pastor, it seems as though the American church is bleeding. We are bleeding scientifically inclined folk. We regularly lose people to the perceived divide between religion and science. In fact, you probably have somebody in your extended family, an aunt, an uncle, somebody who went off to college, got a biology degree, a chemistry degree in college, and then ended up leaving the church and did so in part because they couldn't reconcile what they were learning scientifically with, with what they had learned as the traditional reading of Scripture. They couldn't reconcile it with these ideas, that God created all species directly, that God did it, at least in the young earth version, 6,000 years ago, that God made an original man and woman from the dust of the earth, and from that original man and woman descended all of humanity as we know it. You know, those ideas, that kind of goes against everything you're taught, even in high school biology class, right? So I don't know if it's in response to this. It probably is partially in response to this. An increasing number of Christians today are adopting the position known as theistic evolution. There are a lot of different variants of theistic evolution, but in essence, it maintains that God started the process of evolution and natural selection, which, over a very long period of time, has led to the development of all the biological diversity and complexity that we see on earth today. As I said, God began the process, and once the process started, there was no need for God to intervene supernaturally. So down through uh, hundreds of millions of years, evolution finally reaches its pinnacle a hundred thousand years ago when human beings descend from primates. And at this point, then, different ideas on theistic evolution vary, but most who hold to it believe that at that point, God you know, looked out over the, the primates who were quite sophisticated, and from them he selected an Adam and Eve, a Neolithic farmer pair with whom uh, he specially re- reveals himself and breathes a soul into them and, and uh, bestows upon them his image, and they become the very first humans. Not all of humanity was descended from this pair, though. The human genome analysis, you probably know this, but the human genome analysis strongly indicates that the 7 billion people we have on Earth right now uh, come from an original population of about 100,000 people. And if you, the archaeologists would say that if you trace it 
the, uh, the center of that population was not somewhere in the Middle East where we imagine the Garden of Eden might be, but it's most, li- most likely in East Africa. Finally, the last thing I would say is that those who hold to theistic evolution are quick to distinguish it, uh, quick to distinguish between evolution as a biological process and evolution as a grand theory of everything, as the explanation for every facet of human behavior and society. Those who hold to theistic evolution wouldn't, would not believe in evolution with a capital E, but evolution with a lowercase e. And as I said, it's growing and it's definitely growing in popularity. If you read some of the Roman Catholic literature, over the last five years, the Roman Catholic Church has definitely been moving towards theistic evolution. Um, some luminaries of the Christian faith, C.S. Lewis was a theistic evolutionist. John Stott, uh, Derek Kidner, noted Old Testament professor, uh, scholar, also Francis Collins, the director of the Human Genome Project. He, all of these guys would be, as I understand it, within that camp. On the very other end of the spectrum, you have the position you find frequently in Christian circles that God created this earth very recently, within six to 10,000 years ago, but he created it with apparent age. Or they, the way they speak about it is creation that was fully mature. So, if, for example, if you and I walked into the Garden of Eden on day—what day? If we walked into the Garden of Eden on day four, and we chopped down a tree, and we looked at the wood, what we would find, even though that tree was only 24 hours old, nevertheless, it would have all of the tree rings in it that would correspond to whatever age that tree was originally created by God to look like. So if it was a 50-year-old oak tree, then you'd have 50-year-old worth of oak rings, tree rings. Similarly, if you and I were to meet Adam and Eve on day seven, they would only be 24 hours old, but they would appear to be in their 20s, age 20, maybe age 30s. They would have belly buttons, even though they weren't born with umbilical cords. Their teeth, their skin, their bodies, all of that would have the normal wear and tear that your regular 20 or 30-year-old person naturally has. So what are we to make of all of this? Let's just skip and go on to the next point. (laughs) Speaking personally, I'm not satisfied with either solution. I mean, the apparent age, mature creation side, I find it very hard to believe that God would create a universe with so many apparent indices of age I, I think it's crazy, the idea that there would be fossils buried deep in rock layers in the fossil record of creatures that actually never walked on the face of the earth and never died, but were nevertheless fossilized there to give the appearance of age. Or that we would be seeing the light from exploding supernovas that's only now reaching the earth of celestial bodies that never actually exploded, but were only created to look that way, I just, uh, it makes God to me seem like a deceiver. On the other hand, to embrace theistic evolution, 
you have to do some serious theological gymnastics, you know, convoluted stretches in order to make the scriptures fit it. For instance, remember one of the repeated themes or sayings in chapter 1 is that God created things according to their kinds? Wasn't it you know, seeds, seed-bearing trees according to their kinds? And it gets repeated like six times in chapter 1. Well, if God created everything according to their kinds, that would seem to kind of rule out this massive evolutionary tree that's, spre- that's all spreading out from one singular uh, um, uh, initial biological life form. Um, that just doesn't make sense to me either. What makes this the, uh, so especially difficult, at least for me, is I'm not a science skeptic. I know some of you Some of you are. Some of you believe that science is philosophically atheistic and incompatible with the biblical worldview. And I respect that, uh, that position. I'm, I'm not that. I said last week, I taken, I took a lot of science classes in college. I I took a lot of geology classes in college. Uh, I'm pretty science trusting. Maybe wrongly so. So when I hear the theory of evolution from scientists when they say that there is an overwhelming amount of corroborating evidence across numerous scientific fields of inquiry supporting the theory, um, and they, they would say that the stuff we've been able to do with the human genome over the last two decades, it strongly supports the theory. When they say it's the best explanation we have for biological life on this planet, um, I think they are probably right. It probably is the best explanation for biological life on the planet right now. And I have read the Christian critiques. Philip Johnson's Darwin on Trial, Michael Behe's Darwin's Black Box. So I know I'm in a minority, very much so, in my own congregation, I think. I find myself in an odd place because what I think is the most faithful reading of Scripture— is actually in contradiction to what I think is probably the best scientific explanation we have out there. Um, Ultimately, they don't contradict. We know that because God is the author of both books. God is the author of nature. God is the author of of Scripture. Same author, two different books. They're not going to be in contradiction. Uh, What happens, though, is we interpret those books imperfectly. So what do I, what do, what does a person like me do who, who doesn't, who doesn't want to say no to all the science, but who definitely doesn't want to do theological gymnastics with the scriptures and try to harmonize the two? I guess where I've come down to it is I'm willing to live in the creative tension of saying, I don't know how these two fit together. And I'm not interested in harmonizing them. I, I know that, I know that that's what people normally do. You gotta change the Bible and come up with some novel interpretation that fits evolution, or you've gotta write this, this great book critiquing evolution, and, um, I'm just not interested in going there. I'm willing to live with the, the tension. Yeah, I know the science may be wrong. We, we may have missed the science. Science changes. Scientific paradigms change. Uh, one of the most eye-opening books I read over when I was in seminary was Thomas Kuhn's The Structure of Scientific Revol- Revolutions. And 
yeah, I understand how the philosophy of science actually works. And we may have the science wrong. We may have misinterpreted the scriptures. Like I said, I don't know how it fits. And I don't think it's, it's a weakness to say those three words. I don't know. I don't know. Um, time is on our side, and eventually things are going to become clearer. Before I move on, though, the critical question is, is this one. Did Adam and Eve actually exist as historic people? I know there are a number of you in our church who are on the theistic evolution side, and I want to give you this caution. I think it's critically important that we maintain a historic Adam and Eve. When people start saying things like Adam and Eve were just literary creations, Adam and Eve are just mythological figures, there's no historic Adam, there's only, here's what you hear, there's only literary Adam, that, my friends, is a a very dangerous slippery slope. Because it certainly seems as though Jesus and Paul, they believed that Adam and Eve were real people. If you're looking at the passages, uh, Jesus in Matthew 19 and the Apostle Paul in Romans 5, they refer to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 and 2 clearly as real historical persons. Certainly the global historic church for the last two millennia has believed that Adam and Eve are actually existing people. My fear is that if you jettison Adam and Eve Eventually, down the road, you'll jettison the Bible's teaching that sin entered the world through one man, and then correspondingly, salvation and redemption entered into the world through another man. That Adam was the first Adam, and that Jesus was the second Adam. Now, if you believe that, that, that parallel, first Adam, second Adam, well, what do we know about the second Adam? We know he's not an allegory. We know that he's not merely literary. We know that he's not metaphorical. We know that he's not mythological. If that is true of the second Adam, then it stands to reason if he's real, the first Adam is real as well. On the whole, I think what, what we modern Christians do, the mistake we make, is we adopt new theology far too quickly The way it usually works is you get a few scholars who are either from Europe or from North America, and they come up with this novel interpretation of things. And then the North American, American, European, American church, we're like, yeah, we're on this. And we adopt it without ever taking the time to be patient and wait for a, a, a global consensus among the global church, not just white scholars and in academia, but, but doing the painstaking hard work of, of looking and achieving a larger consensus, what ends up happening is we create, I think, disastrous unintended consequences by us adopting you know, novel theology. And I could expand on that um, some other time. <laughs> I'd be happy to dialogue with anybody further on uh, any of you further on this topic. It's, my formulations are, are extremely tentative <laughs> as far as I understand them. It's where I'm at today. And, but that's not the most important part of this passage. Let's finish things off by circling back to what does it mean for 
me to be human and for you to be human. And how does being human affect our life on Monday morning at 7 o'clock? Three takeaways, and they're pretty quick. Number one, pretty simple. God doesn't make junk. God does not make junk. It does not matter what you have done with your life, how you have failed in your life, how low you have gone in your life. Carl Rogers, who is the uh, founder of one of the major psychotherapy, um, client-centered therapy treatments in, in the counseling circles today, after decades of research meeting with tens of thousands of clients, Carl Rogers concluded his life's work by observing that, quote, the central core of difficulty in people as I have come to know them, it is that in the great majority of cases, they despise themselves and regard themselves as worthless and unlovable. In other words, after basically meeting with tons and tons of people in the counseling room, he says, the biggest problem, I, common problem I find is that people feel and think like they are junk. If our doctrine of the Imago Dei, of the image of God, is correct, then it is so wrong to think that way. And yet it's so natural for us to do. I mean, how, you would have to answer this question for yourself. How often do you go through periods of just extreme self-loathing and self-hatred? No, every person who comes across your path, you need to treat with a sacredness, a reverence, a respect, and a concern for their individuality, a kindness. You need to treat every person with the kindness, and that includes the person who is looking back at you in the mirror on Monday morning. Why is it that we just, we regard ourselves as junk? I think that's one of the questions maybe your community group would enjoy exploring further this week. But if the Imago Dei is true, then there is a rock-solid, objective, irreducible glory and significance and value and worth about you and every human being there is. And it is our moral duty to acknowledge that and to live by that. Number two, you have been made to last forever. If you look at verse 7 in chapter 2, It says that God breathed his life into Adam and created mankind with a soul. That word soul is notoriously difficult to define. What is a soul? Uh, A soul, we think, is the non-physical, immaterial part of you that is at the center of you. The part of you that ties all of you together. That ties your mind, your will, your emotions. Your soul is who you truly are. It's something that God gave to you that he didn't give to the fish or to animals or to insects. And it's the most important part of you. We don't live that way, do we? That our souls are the most important part of us. That there is a part of us which we have right now that is going to be in existence one billion years in the future. And yet, we don't don't think about our souls. We pay so little attention to it. And we pay so little attention to other people's souls. C.S. Lewis's famous sermon, The Weight of Glory, he puts it so well when he says that you have never met a mere mortal. In all your days on this earth, you've never met a mortal. You've never, nations and civilizations, those are mortal. Because in the end, the United States and Russia and North Korea, 
they're going to end. They're, the lifespan of a nation is, in comparison to our lifespan, like the lifespan of a gnat. But he says, it is immortals whom we joke with, immortals whom we work with, immortals whom we marry and snub and exploit. Those are all immortal people. And they're carrying a soul inside of them right now that they're always going to have. It's so, it's so critical that we, in all of our relationships with people, try and, and never to do damage to another person's soul. And never do damage to our soul, but to try and interact with people so that we never do harm to their soul. I have found in my own life that bitterness and unforgiveness, when you allow those things to take root inside of you, that is what does tremendous spiritual damage to our soul. Um, we, can't, we can't allow that to happen any longer. Thirdly and finally, Rankin Wilburn, in his book Union with Christ, it's book plug, it's back on the table, extremely good book, and I've referred to his stuff a number of times in the sermon. He tells us this. He reminds us that Jesus Christ, he is the true image of God. Jesus not only shows us who God is, he shows us as the true, true image of God who we are meant to be. Jesus is the perfect image of God that has never been defaced by sin. So one of the ways the early church fathers, the, they understood this, is they would say that all of us are made in the image of God, but then there's also this thing that, G, that God says, that we, he says, uh, I also created them in my likeness. So there's the image of God and there's the likeness of God. And what they would say is, we all, we all have the image of God, but it's the likeness of God that has been deformed and marred inside, uh, inside of us by sin. Uh, another metaphor that's been used is we are like cracked icons. We are icons which have been warped, which are broken, which are cracked. Jesus is the only human being who has never been cracked like that. He shows us what a human is supposed to be. If you want to know what we are supposed to be, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Oh, great, you might be thinking, just be like Jesus. I can't do that. It's not very helpful when preachers tell me to be like Jesus. Well, actually, it's your destiny to be like Jesus. Second Corinthians 3.18, and I'll conclude with this, it says, Beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image of the Lord from one degree of glory into another. We are cracked icons, but the image of God is being healed. It is being renewed. And our destiny is that one day we shall be like him, no longer cracked, but perfectly resembling what God has for us to be. Amen.